everybody. Welcome back to Generation Invincible, a podcast on public health, healthcare policy, and social justice issues by a millennial for millennials, and anyone else that cares about the health and social problems facing our nation. I'm your host, Abigail Meller. This past week, Saturday, August 6th to be specific, marked the 51st anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, which was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson on August 6th, 1965. So what was the original goal so many years ago? Well, maybe not so many, since my parents were alive then. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Anyways, back to the point. The goal was to overcome legal barriers at the state and local levels that prevented Black Americans from voting, as was and still is their right under the 15th Amendment of the Constitution. It was considered one of the most far-reaching pieces of civil rights legislation in U.S. history. After the Civil War, the 15th Amendment, which was ratified in 1870, prohibited states from denying a male citizen the right to vote based on, quote, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Despite this, for decades after the addition of the 15th Amendment, various discriminatory practices were used to prevent African Americans, particularly those in the South, from exercising their right to vote. In the 1950s and 60s, as we already know, the civil rights movement was starting to make great strides in the fight for voting rights for all in the United States. However, those that stood up for this cause were often subjected to hate, mistreatment, and violence. In particular, on March 7, 1965, peaceful individuals, including Martin Luther King Jr., participated in a voting rights march from Selma, Alabama, to the state capitol in Montgomery. They were met by Alabama state troopers, who attacked them with nightsticks, tear gas, and whips after they refused to turn back. Some protesters were severely beaten, and others ran for their lives. The incident was captured on national television, so at this point, there was no question of the lack of equality in the country. And we're actually still seeing this today, just in the form of videos posted to Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. After the event in Selma, President Johnson called for comprehensive voting rights legislation. Less than 10 days after Selma, the president spoke to a joint session of Congress, explaining all the different ways that African Americans were denied the right to vote. These included things like Jim Crow laws, electoral fraud, literacy tests, poll taxes, property ownership requirements, moral character tests, and the grandfather clause. In this case, southern states used grandfather clauses to make those whose grandfathers previously voted exempt from literacy tests, poll taxes, and basically all the deterring factors put in place to prevent African Americans from voting. Because obviously, at this time, this only applied to African Americans since their grandfathers were either slaves or otherwise ineligible to vote during their lifetimes. Cue these grandfathers rolling over in their graves. These restrictions occurred primarily in southern states, where, as President Johnson mentioned in his speech to Congress, voting officials were known to force black voters to recite the entire Constitution in order to vote, something that I'm pretty sure, like, 99% of you guys can't do. The Voting Rights Act was officially signed into law on August 6th. It banned the use of literacy tests, provided for federal oversight of voter registration in areas where less than 50% of the non-white population had not registered to vote, and authorized the U.S. Attorney General to investigate the use of poll taxes in both state and local elections. Eventually, poll taxes were made illegal in 1964 for federal elections and 1966 in state elections. When the Voting Rights Act was originally passed, legislators hoped that within five years, the problems would be resolved and there would be no further need for these enforcement-related provisions. 
However, it proved necessary to extend these in 1970 and again in 1975 and 1982. They were set to expire in August of 2007, but were extended for another 25 years with the July 2007 reauthorization vote. Okay, but that was 2007. We surely don't need explicit laws protecting the voting rights of minority groups, particularly African Americans, anymore. Right? Wrong. Enter the court case known as Shelby County v. Holder. This court case questioned the constitutionality of two provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, specifically Section 5 and Section 4B, respectively requiring certain states and local governments to get federal preclearance before making any changes to voting laws or practices, and the coverage formula that determines which jurisdictions are subjected to preclearance based on their histories of discrimination in voting. Yes, confusing, I know. When I read this, too, I sort of did that head-scratch thing and read it a few more times to try and understand. So let me break it down for you. Over the years, the pieces of the Voting Rights Act, also known as the VRA, have required reauthorization by Congress. This is related to the idea that legislators thought that the country would eventually have less desire for the discriminatory and racist policies that the VRA protected against, which we know is not true since Congress has found the need to reauthorize the VRA multiple times. Considering the multiple reauthorizations, which required determining that its pieces were constitutional for each reauthorization, it may surprise you that in April 2010, Shelby County, Alabama, which is a majority white suburb of Birmingham, filed a suit in federal court against Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, saying it was unconstitutional. They said that Congress didn't have the constitutional authority to reauthorize Section 5 in 2006. This suit went from the District Court to the Court of Appeals all the way up, I'm all the way up. to the Supreme Court. Like I said before, the 4B part of the Voting Rights Act is the coverage formula that figures out which states and local governments can qualify for preclearance. Preclearance meaning that they don't have to check in with the feds when they want to pass a new law or policy related to voting practice and procedure. The formula figured out which jurisdictions had a prohibited test or device as a condition of registering to vote or voting, and had a population of 18 or older, aka voting age, where less than 50% were either registered to vote or actually voted in that year's presidential election. Now, here's where it gets sticky. In the past, the formula for Section 4B was evaluated and updated slash changed from the original 1964 during multiple reauthorizations in November of 1968 and 1972, and two more times since then. When Congress reauthorized again in 2006 for an additional 25 years, they did not update the formula from the 1975 version. On the one hand, we can say with some confidence that Congress wasn't just reauthorizing without thinking. There was evidence in 2006 that justified the reauthorization without changing the formula. In fact, during the 2006 reauthorization of the VRA, Congress conducted more than 20 hearings, heard from over 90 expert witnesses, and collected more than 15,000 pages of testimony documenting the continued need for and constitutionality of the statute. This meant that when they reauthorized, they checked the voting policies of the jurisdictions in question and found that there was not enough evidence showing the protection of the rights of minority voters. And this was upheld both in the District Court and the Court of Appeals during Shelby County v. Holder. But when we got to the Supreme Court, things changed. 
During oral arguments, it appeared that the justices would rule for unconstitutional because of certain comments, like Justice Scalia, RIP, saying that he thought Congress reauthorized because it was a, quote, racial entitlement. Ultimately, in June of 2013, in a 5-4 decision vote, the Supreme Court struck down Section 4B, declaring it unconstitutional. They said that it overdid the enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendments, where the 14th covers things like citizenship, due process, and protection under law, and the 15th prohibits the government from denying a citizen the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Their decision stated that the coverage formula was going against the concept of federalism and sovereignty of states, or the independence of states from the federal government, because it was treating states unfairly and unequally and, quote, based on 40-year-old facts having no logical relationship to the present day. The concern was that the formula was not applicable to current conditions, even though it was found to be before reauthorization and that the Supreme Court thought that Congress was punishing states for the past rather than preventing racial discrimination in voting. And in the end, although the court did not say that Section 5 was unconstitutional as well, when they got rid of 4B, they basically got rid of 5 also because it was dependent on the conditions of 4B. In conclusion, to quote the notorious RBG in her dissent of the ruling, even though discrimination in voting has decreased in the jurisdiction since the VRA, quote, Throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Before Shelby County v. Holder, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which we now know is basically defunct, applied to all or part of 16 states, including but not limited to Alabama, California, Georgia, Louisiana, and more. Since then, there have not been one, not a few, but many violations of voting rights discrimination all over the country. One example of this that has occurred many times is known as at-large voting. Using this policy, all voters cast their ballots for all candidates within the jurisdiction. This is widely seen as a discriminatory voting practice because they prevent minority voters from electing their candidates of choice where they are not the majority in the jurisdiction. A similar practice with similar results is also putting minority groups into multi-member districts, which lessens the voting strength of the minority group and prevents them from electing any of its preferred candidates. Since the Voting Rights Act is partly still in place because it is a law, At-large voting practices have been mostly removed based on Section 2. This is because the at-large method is often used to submerge and overshadow minority votes in elections that a white majority of voters control. For example, in the court case Dillard v. Crenshaw County, Alabama, it was found that hundreds of districts in Alabama had been using at-large voting practices to discriminate against black voters. Ultimately, using multi-member districts and at-large voting practices are both related to gerrymandering. I distinctly remember talking about gerrymandering in my 8th grade Georgia history class and thinking, wow, this is such a weird-sounding word that has literally nothing to do with what it actually means. But actually, it comes from an instance of redrawing state Senate election districts in 1812 by Governor Elbridge Gerry, who did so in order to benefit his party. The strange redrawing of one district was said to look like a salamander, hence Jerry and Mander. Anyways, 
Nowadays, gerrymandering is prohibited under Sections 2 and 5 of the Voting Rights Act, as well as the Equal Protection Clause. Gerrymandering as a form of racial voting discrimination has both been practiced in order to prevent racial minorities from electing their preferred candidates, as well as the affirmative version, which is where redistricting occurs to separate voters on the basis of race. The Supreme Court struck down this type of gerrymandering under the Equal Protection Clause in the court case Shaw v. Reno in 1993, saying that using race as a guide for redistricting, quote, reinforces racial stereotypes and threatens to undermine our system of representative democracy by signaling to elected officials that they represent a particular racial group rather than their constituency as a whole. This practice is also known as packing, which basically decreases the number of districts where the minority group could elect their chosen candidate. And finally, there's fracturing, which again is a type of gerrymandering, and they're basically all related and connected in creating discriminatory voting practices. Fracturing takes groups of minority voters and breaks them down apart from a concentration and then adds them to a large majority district, once again, submerging their votes and making them ineffective at electing their chosen candidate. According to a report released in September of 2015 by the National Commission on Voting Rights, we need to increase efforts at the state and local levels to improve the voter experience by removing obstacles to both registering and casting a ballot. This report was based on testimony from hundreds of witnesses from 25 state and regional National Commission on Voting Rights hearings in 2013 and 2014. One of the main points was related to how we need to make it as easy as possible to register voters. Expansive registration programs like online and same-day voter registration make it easier to register and vote and encourage voter participation. On the other hand, rollbacks of state laws like these and lack of compliance to federal voter registration laws make it harder on voters and therefore decreases voter participation. Now I'm going to touch on voter fraud for a second. And I will make this very clear. Voter fraud is a myth and does not have any impact on most elections and definitely doesn't have an effect on federal elections. Voter fraud is extremely rare, to the point where Rutgers political science Lorraine Midnight stated in her book, The Myth of Voter Fraud, that prosecutions for migratory bird violations far surpassed election fraud in the 2005 fiscal year. And a five-year investigation during the Bush administration found that basically no evidence of any organized effort to skew federal elections. The idea of voter impersonation is extremely strong within the Republican Party, with 36% of Republicans believing that voter impersonation affects at least a few thousand votes, according to one survey. In contrast, only 20% of independents and 7% of Democrats believe this. Come on, people. This is not scandal. That's a TV show that depicted a ridiculous instance of voter fraud that literally could not and would not happen in the United States today. That's why it's a juicy TV show and not a reality. Although it often depicts reality, obviously because Hollis is Donald Trump. I'm not saying, however, that there are never instances of voter fraud. Of course, there will always be a few crazies thinking that they can make a difference with a few votes. 
But most of the types of voter fraud have been through the use of absentee ballots rather than the virtually non-existent and unproven idea that people show up at the polls pretending to be someone else to vote or that people pose as election officials to put illegal votes in for a candidate. Even in these cases, there's not currently enough widespread voter fraud to make any impact on most elections, especially at the federal level. One professor from Loyola University Law School compiled a list of documented in-person voter fraud that could have been prevented by stricter voter ID laws at polling places and found that the most severe instance was up to 24 voters in Brooklyn who tried to use fake names. Most House and Senate elections have victories of thousands of votes, with only five since 2006 being under 500 and zero elections being won within a 24-vote margin. And the voter ID laws that are supposed to prevent this non-existent type of voter fraud, they do more harm than good. If you have found any evidence that they are actually good for us, please, by all means, let me know. But for example, the Nonpartisan Government Accountability Office analyzed the effect of voter ID laws in Kansas and Tennessee for turnout in the 2012 election, discovering that turnout dropped at least 1.9 percentage points in Kansas and 2.2 percentage points in Tennessee. Young people, black people, and new voters were the groups that had the biggest drops in turnout. And because we no longer have any federal oversight for monitoring changes in voting practices and procedures to figure out if there is voter discrimination going on, we only have the good word of those who put the new policies in place that, of course, they aren't targeting anybody, just trying to make a fair election. But the point of this entire episode, beyond learning more about what was discussed, is to encourage everyone to register to vote and actually go vote. Seriously. It is such an amazing right that we have in our country, so please don't take it for granted. I know this election is difficult for so many of you who feel like they're choosing between the lesser of two evils, but at the end of the day, it is better to vote than to not vote. I have my own personal opinions about third-party candidates and write-in votes, but all I can say, once again is just to make yourself an educated voter. In my opinion, it is more important than ever to really understand the issues and understand the candidates, learning from facts rather than bias and propaganda for or against whatever candidate you're researching. Don't forget to look up final dates for registering or registering absentee for your state. While I personally like to get my sticker, voting absentee has lots of benefits. To submit feedback about Generation Invincible, ask questions, make suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want someone to listen to what you have to say, email generationinvincible at gmail.com. Find Generation Invincible online on our Tumblr page. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And share with your friends. Until next time, in the words of President Lyndon B. Johnson, the vote is the most powerful instrument ever devised by man for breaking down injustice and destroying the terrible walls which imprison men because they are different from other men. 